The goal of this recording is not to fully describe every concept, but I do hope to explain or at least identify the most commonly tested concepts and the most common areas of confusion. First, growth and development. There are two important patterns in growth and development, cephalocaudal, which means from the head to toe, and proximal distal, which means from the middle of your body out to the extremities. Um, those are two very consistent trends you will see all throughout the body, not in terms of just, not only in terms of physical growth, but in the way that they develop. Um, we develop our trunk before we develop our arms, before we de develop movement in our fingers. Um, there are sequential trends. Sequential trends is an incredibly important concept to understand. And what sequential trends says that within a given category, there's a predictable progression of events. That is to say, a child may talk before they walk, and a child may walk before they talk, but a child will not crawl before they walk, and a child will not walk before they run. In the same way, a child will not talk in three-word sentences before they talk in one-word sentences. Um, it doesn't make sense. They always move in one direction. And it's a predictable um, thing for all children. In terms of physical changes, birth weight doubles at five months, triples at 12 months, quadruples at around two and a half years of age. Birth length should increase by 50% by about 12 months of age, and the anterior fontanelle closes at around 18 months of age. Infant and toddler milestones. For infants, it's probably most helpful to memorize those that happen at around 12 months of age and slightly before. Uh, for example, in terms of language, their first word is around 10 months of age. In terms of fine motor, they start using their pincer grasp at around nine months of age. They really get good with it um, at around 11 months of age. Their first step is around 12 months of age. So you can see how a lot of exciting things are kind of happening right at that transition period. Um, once you've kind of figured out what a 12 month old looks like, then if you figure out what a six-month-old looks like, looks like, you can, for the most part, fill in the blanks in between those enough to answer any test question. Um, one thing to know is that if you do not remember a particular milestone given to you on a test, try to use sequential trends to your advantage. Think about the category of milestone it's in. Is it a gross motor milestone? Is it a fine motor milestone? Is it a language milestone? Once you've identified that, try to bring to mind milestones that you do know within that category and try to think, does this particular milestone that I'd forgotten, that's the test question asking about, does it come before or after the milestones that I do know? How far before, how far after? And that'll give you a good estimate as to um, which answer you're looking for. For the toddler milestones, most the interesting ones um, happen very early on. Um, they start walking independently at around 13 months of age. They start using expressive jargon at that time. So they're moving um, beyond just the words and trying to use grammar, but they don't really know how to do that yet. So they just kind of use the expressions um, that they copy from parents. And then they'll start using actual grammar at around three years of age, kind of toward the end of toddlerhood. Um, also, in the beginning of toddlerhood, they build a tower of two cubes, start start using their cup and their spoon. Um, they're not super great at anything, really, but they're starting to do all the things that we're expecting a full-on toddler to do. And then around by 18 months of age, they look like what we expect a toddler to look like. They're running, climbing, jumping, having temper tantrums and all that. Theories of development. When it comes to theories of development, there are three um, important ones that we need to know. Piaget, Erickson, and Freud. Your first step will be to memorize the names of each of the stages for each of these um, theoretical frameworks. 
For Piaget's theoretical framework, the two most um, important ones to study are pre-operational and concrete operational. Um, for the most part, students do pretty well with sensory motor. Very simple. They move their bodies and they sense things, right? That's really the extent of their cognition. A formal operational thinker is an, is an abstract thinker that they're similar to us. So in those in that way, those two age groups are fairly easy to understand. But there's this transition period from pre-operational to concrete operational that can be confusing. The important thing to understand about a pre-operational thinker is that they're trying to make sense of the world, the universe, how things work, but they're really bad at it. They're making a lot of bad logical conclusions, and the classic one that you'll see in test questions and in books to describe a pre-operational thinker from a nursing standpoint is a child who believes that they caused their illness or caused your sibling's illness. You may have to assure a child that that was not the case, right? The fact that they kicked their sibling didn't cause their um, sibling to get cancer, right? That doesn't make any sense in our minds for a pre-operational thinker, they may think that. For a concrete operational thinker, you're gonna be looking for something that is taking advantage of the fact that they can understand the world accurately, but you need to spell it out for them. A diagram, um, a, a figurine, something like that. They want to know how things work and you have to explain it very, very simply, um, trying to avoid abstract language as much as possible. There are also other a couple other concepts linked to Piaget's theory that aren't really um, part aren't really one of the stages. And those um, two most important ones are probably object permanence and egocentrism. Object permanence is the concept that um, just because an object is not visible, it doesn't mean that it no longer exists. This is something that infants first get a sense of, and they master it around toddlerhood. Egocentrism is the belief that everything in the world has something to do with them. And you can see how egocentrism is linked to pre-operational thinking. Going back to that example of a pre-operational thinker that believed that it had caused their sibling's illness, um, that is egocentric thinking. They think that all these things in the world somehow are connected to them. Erickson's theory describes psychosocial development. So this is different from Piaget's theory, which um, describes cognitive development. There's not really a firm line you can draw between these two. Of course, cognitive function and social function kind of go together. But when you're, when you're faced with an Erickson's theory question, you're gonna be looking for something that has a social element. It won't only be cognitive in nature. When it comes to these different stages, the most um, important one that I see most often on the test is autonomy versus shame. This is a difficult um, life stage because we want children to have a sense of autonomy. This is the goal of, the, of this stage for them to have a sense of autonomy according to Erickson. But this is toddlers. Toddlers are in an autonomy versus shame group. And toddlers don't really know what is best for them. They ask for things that they that we should not give them. Um, when they're about to get their vaccines, they say, no, I don't want it, right? Um, when, when we're asking them uh, what they want for lunch or for dinner, um, they're gonna say hamburgers, hot dogs, right? They're gonna say ice cream. They're not gonna always tell you, um, and very unlikely they're going to tell you things that are actually good for them to eat. And so we need to do, we need to um, give them a sense of autonomy, giving them choices in things that um, we can safely give them choices about. Um, do you want me to first look at your right hand or your left hand? Do you want me to do your blood pressure in your right arm or your left arm, right? Those are going to be the kind of choices that we are going to give to a child, a choice where both options are um, valid choices. This is very, very important to understand. 
One common source of confusion is autonomy as opposed to initiative as opposed to industry. So um, those, I get those words from the stages for the toddler, preschooler, and school-age child. Um, for toddlers, autonomy versus shame. For a preschooler, it's initiative versus skill. For a school-age child, it is industry versus inferiority. Autonomy, like I just described, is the desire to make decisions for yourself. Initiative is a little different in that children want to initiate new activities. Industry is different in that they want to get good at those activities. So autonomy is choosing for themselves. Initiative is doing new things. Industry is being good at things. There's often a lot of confusion between those three um, healthy outcomes. When it comes to unhealthy outcomes, there's also a little bit of confusion. Remember, sh the, there's a little difference between shame and guilt. Guilt is like you've done something wrong. Shame is just feeling ashamed of, um, of an inability. And industry versus inferiority if inferiority is almost like a very specific type of shame in that they feel inferior compared to their peers um, specifically. So when you're thinking about those unhealthy outcomes and those, uh, those healthy and unhealthy outcomes, um, try to make sure that you understand the difference between these three. The last stage of Erickson's for children, identity versus role confusion, is for the most part um, fairly easy to understand, but when it comes to applying it, sometimes students get tripped up because um, they'll be faced with four different options that are good for a teenager, but only one will be relevant to Erickson. So a test question might say, you know, how would you apply Erickson's theory for a teenage child? And one of the options might be, um, have the teenager uh, get exercise. Should a teenager get exercise? Yes, definitely. Um, is this an application of Erickson's theory? No, it is not. Freud's theory. So when it comes to Freud's theory, um, the most important thing is to know um, when the different stages begin. And the most important stages to know specifically are the oral stage and the anal stage. And um, from the oral stage, they get gratification through um, oral stimulation. So sucking, um, biting, chewing, something like that. For the anal stage, the most important thing, um, the most important way that toddlers um, get anal satisfaction is by uh, successfully potty training. So it's very important that we set children up for success. And part of that is to not set yourself up for failure. Um, there are certain situations where it's not the right time to be potty training. For example, if they are going through a very stressful time, if they're hospitalized, if they're really sick, um, that is not the time to try potty training. If you try potty training during that time, um, you will actually cause that, you may cause that child actually to regress. And so um, in that sense, you'll see that um, successful potty training is a huge, is probably the one biggest um, application of Freud's theory um, in the anal stage. For the later stages of Freud, they're fairly predictable. Um, there's the applications, things like giving them privacy, understand that they'll have sexual feelings, things like that. Play. Play is very, very important in children. It's a way that they um, develop themselves. And in that way, you're going to see that a lot of test questions that are related to play are linked to milestones and linked to just their um, where they are in their growth and development. Or it may even be linked to injury prevention for that particular age group. For example, um, children who are beginning to walk and run around, um, they love playing with push and play, push and pull toys, right? Um, it's it's developing a skill that they're really um, that they want to use. Um, for an for an infant, they may just like colorful toys, right? That's really what they want because they're in the sensory motor stage. Uh, for a preschooler, they may want to do things like dramatic play. 
because they want to use that imagination um, that they now have and try new things, right? And that's kind of related to um, the initiative versus guilt stage for preschoolers. And so you can see how the theoretical framework may get you to understand um, whether whether a particular type of play is appropriate for a particular child. Um, sometimes it's by milestones. Um, if it requires them to pick up small objects, then they will need to be able to pick up small objects and they develop the pincer grasp at around nine months of age. So you can see how sometimes you can find out whether a particular type of play is appropriate to the child based on a theoretical framework, sometimes based on their fine gross motor development. The two most um, commonly confused types of play are associative and cooperative play. Um, cooperative play is play that is true cooperation. They need to work together in order to do, um, to do the task correctly. Um, a great example would be a board game. Right. Um, if one person doesn't understand the rules to the board game, you can't really play the board game. Of course, you can just play with the pieces and like knock them around, but you're not actually playing the board game. Um, so anything that requires rules, anything that requires cooperation is cooperative play. Associative play is going to be um, play that is um, that does involve several several children, but it doesn't require a set of rules, right? There's no one keeping score in any particular way. So playing um, house, playing um, very imaginative games would be an example of associative play. Sleep. When it comes to sleep, children sleep less and less with age. As they just get older, um, in general, especially during infancy, um, they'll sleep less and less. So the two most important um, milestones when it comes to them sleeping less and less is that they sleep through the night at the end of infancy. So at kind of toward the end of the first year, they should sleep through the night. And then at the end of toddlerhood, um, there's no more nap time. So um, sleeping through the night happens at the end of infancy. Um, nap time gets eliminated kind of toward the end of toddlerhood. Developmentally appropriate nursing practice. When it comes to developmentally appropriate nursing practice, um, the most important thing to remember is to slow down when you're reading the question. Make sure that you're reading what age the child is in the question. Um, and I, I can't emphasize this enough because um, many students, when they see their test question after they've answered it, looking backward, all of a sudden they just hit their head because they're just so confused just how they could have possibly um, mistaken a particular question because it'll say something like, you know, what's the best toy for a teenager? And they'll something they'll say something like a rattle or um, a colorful beads or something like that. And they'll think, why, why did I think that? Um, and it's because they thought that the question was asking about an infant. And so um, even if you know everything correctly, um, it's not going to do you any good if you don't slow down and read the test question. That's the number one thing I can tell you about developmentally appropriate nursing practice questions. Um, the next most important thing is to use what you know about Piaget and Erickson. Um, think about a sensory motor um, or pre-operational child, um, a child in those stages of thinking. Um, they're, they're really going to be interested in how things feel, right? When you're trying to explain this to a child, um, you're not really going to be able to explain much about how things work. But for a concrete operational child, they are very curious and they definitely want to be um, told how things work and it'll help to get their um It'll get their cooperation in order to kind of feed their curiosity in that way.
One thing that you learn in adult nursing is that you should go from least to most invasive. When it comes to children, you want to modify that a little bit. You want to go from least to most scary. So in general, you're going to want to think about um, not only what's least to most invasive, but look at these options through a child's eyes and what is less scary, what is more scary. For example, it's less scary to talk to the parents than to talk to the child. So you talk to the parents first, then you talk to the child. It's less scary to assess the feet than to assess the head. So you assess the feet first, then you assess the head. For the most part, if you have a good intuition on does would a child be scared by this, then you would have a good uh, intuition in terms of answering a lot of these types of questions. So the other part to this is when do you move on to the next more scary thing? And um, the 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 hope of this is that as you do things that are less scary, they'll trust you more and they'll be ready for you to move on to the next thing. So there are a couple things that um, children do in order to um, express that they are ready to move on to other things, that they're comfortable around your presence. For the most part, it will be pretty easy to understand those things. Um, they're just more comfortable. They begin playing. They start talking to the nurse. They start looking at the nurse. Um, notice that I assumed that this child was a young child. For the most part, developmentally appropriate nursing practice for a teenager is the same as an adult. It's not very interesting. It's not something that shows up in test questions very often. Childhood injuries. It's important to understand that injuries are the most common cause of death and motor vehicle accidents are the most common cause of injury death. Um, part of the reason why children are more at risk is because anatomically, they have very large head and large organs. Um, cognitively, they have poor judgment and coordination. A lot of the things that we can do to try to prevent childhood injuries will become um, fairly obvious when you think about it, as long as you can slow down and think through it. Um, should you turn the pot handles to the front of the stove or toward the back? Um, you should definitely turn it toward the back so that children don't um, pull up and grab it. Um, should you leave children around water unattended? No. Um, should you put a helmet on a child when they are riding a bicycle? Yes, right? So some of these things are um, pretty simple to understand. Even if you've never studied it before, a lot of times you'll be able to get these questions correct. Um, one exception would be seat safety, car seat safety. Two most important details when it comes to seat safety is that children should be in a rear-facing seat until two years of age and then a booster seat until eight years of age.